0: Last time we were in 1 John, we covered one verse. And I always say I'm not trying to make a habit of covering one verse. Uh, I didn't know then that today we would be covering half of one verse. So we're actually going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 6a. And Lord willing, next time we'll consider 6b and onward. Just for some context, I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, knowing that we're only going to be covering verse 6a this morning. So follow with me in the beginning of chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And here's our verse. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now to understand these rich theological truths that you have packed in to half of this verse. Lord, we ask that you would give us encouragement this morning through it and that we would see your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you would do also by the power of the Spirit who works in the Word and who works among us this morning for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Latin saying, Veni, Vidi, Vici, which translated is, I came, I saw, I conquered, is perhaps one of the most famous sayings from antiquity. (laughs) Believed to have been said by none other than Julius Caesar, after his war against Pontus at the Battle of Zella, roughly 50 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. This saying was, and even is today, by the standard of many, the most memorable declaration of victory the world has ever heard. Now I've always envisioned this saying as spontaneously coming off the lips of Julius Caesar in the heat of conquest, but according to historians, that's not exactly the case. According to Apian, the ancient Greek historian, Julius Caesar used the phrase in a letter to the Roman Senate after his victory. But Suetonius, an even earlier Roman historian, writes that Caesar paraded this saying, veni vidi vici, on a placard for the whole world to see. Whatever the historical reality we now understand that this famous declaration was a written declaration. A written declaration that would not only stand the test of time, but go on to cover the world. As those who have been born of God, we recognize this as just a dim reflection of a greater reality, of a greater written declaration of a greater King, of a greater victory. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who boasts of a greater victory over sin and over death. And what's more is that this, too, is a written declaration of an historical event that has not only stood the test of time, but has also covered the world, not resulting in mere admirers of strength, of military might, as was the case with Julius Caesar, but rather sons and daughters of the creator of heaven and earth. And as we will see, this saying, I came, I saw, I conquered, will serve the gospel this morning to begin to consider 1 John 5-6. I doubt that Julius Caesar thought that his famous saying would be used to not promote him and his conquests, but to promote Jesus and his conquests. So let us use it as a template. If you're keeping notes, here's our general outline. Three parts. He came, he saw, he conquered. Number one, he came. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. Number two, he saw the ministry of Jesus Christ. And number three, he conquered the victory of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, let us look at half of this one verse together, shall we? It begins this way This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. He came. It will do us well to remember the context again. The context is that of proto-Gnostic, docetic teachers who had crept into the church who were preaching and teaching of a different Jesus. Not a Jesus according to the scriptures, but a teacher according to their own fancies. A Jesus that was not God in and of Himself. A Jesus that was merely a man, and yet was a special man, because according to this docetic idea, this man, Jesus Christ, was endowed with the Christ Spirit. We'll unpack that later as we go on. But this is the context, a proto-Gnostic docetic context. In other words, it was a context about those who denied that Jesus of Nazareth could be in and of himself the Christ or the Son of God. You may have noticed, I know you did because we unpacked it in detail last time, actually the the last previous two sermons, that our confession is a confession not just that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, but that he's also the Son of God. And we link that back to Peter's confession. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we noticed how calling Jesus just Messiah stops short of a true confession. He's not just the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the son of God. And how in one sense, the Messiah is pointing to his earthly ministry the Jews all thought the Messiah would be a man born of flesh. But Jesus is more than just a man Messiah. He's a God-man Messiah. And that's the second confession that John gave us about those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. The Docetics and the proto-gnostics had no problem calling are looking at Jesus as being Christ in some way, and looking at Jesus as being the Son of God in some way. And it's in some way where the rub takes place. Because they believe that Jesus, being just a man, was not the Christ, and that Jesus, being just a man, was not divine, the Son of God, but rather that Jesus was endowed with the Christ Spirit, And not that he was born that way, but that he became the Christ. He became the Son of God later in his life. And we will unpack that as we continue. But this is the context. This is what brings it all into focus. Look back at 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We remember these words when John said this, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Remember, the Docetics have no problem talking about Jesus as being Christ in a qualified sense, being the Son of God in a qualified sense. What they have a problem with is saying that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. John goes on in verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming And now it is already in the world. And he goes on to say, You are from God, little children, and I've overcome them. Who's the them? It's the false teachers who are promoting this false Christ. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. And then he goes on to say, we are from God. Who's the we? It's the apostles. We talked about this. This is an apostolic doctrine. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I hope these are starting to come into focus now that there was a battle going on in the first century between these false teachers who wanted to claim as much authority as the apostles teaching a false Christ. And John is saying, no, they are not apostles. They don't have the authority that we have. We are teaching you of the true Christ. They are teaching you of a false Christ. Those who are born of God, listen to us. I have no intention right now of covering 2 John, but if we did, we would see something very similar in 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not know, I'm sorry, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. It's in the flesh part where the rub is. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, that's the context. That's the context of the beginning of this verse. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of the theology behind this. What is the theology behind this is the one who came? Well, much can be said. John is disclosing here an undeniable historical reality. Unlike the Antichrist, who was coming, future tense. Jesus Christ is the one who had already come in the flesh. This is the one who came. But beyond pointing at this historical reality that Jesus Christ has already come, even in the first century to his little children whom he is writing to, there is much more. I believe John theologically is revealing the antitype of all the prophetical types of the Old Testament. We've seen time and time again through the whole Old Testament that there are illustrations that God is giving us through these historical events of the coming of Christ. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, when, he, when our first parents were promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That was a promise of Jesus Christ. And as we work our way through the Old Testament, we see illustration after illustration after illustration of the coming of Jesus Christ. Truly, as Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, those who rejected him, you think in the Old Testament you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. We won't stop harping on this point that you've heard over and over again from this pulpit. The Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And anytime we truncate that, anytime we put Jesus second to anything else, we're losing the point of the Old Testament about him. And I believe when Jesus says this is the one who came, there's a theological bomb that just went off. He's saying this is the one. Remember in Jesus' earthly ministry and some of them around were saying could this be the one that Moses wrote about? Could this be the one? The wonder of Mary when she's told by the angel Gabriel That the son in your womb will be called Jesus, the Messiah, for he shall save his people from their sins. Do you realize that women in the first century in Judea, all were hoping that they would be the one to give birth to the Messiah. There was an anticipation that he was coming. And Mary, in the quietness of her habitation, receives a divine message from an angel saying it's you woman full of grace this is the one who God has chosen to bring forth the long awaited Messiah and here we have the Apostle John the one whom Jesus loved saying this is the one who came John is revealing That the answer to the promise is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And he has come. He has come. The wait is over. Turn to me, or turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, if you're able. Listen to what the author of the book of Hebrews says, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, this is the point we're looking at right now, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. What's the author saying? The Old Testament is full of shadows. It's full of pictures that weren't the thing in and of themselves. They were pointing to something greater. And in particular, in the context, it's the sacrificial system. This is what John's going to be talking about as we continue in this verse. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, if the sacrifices like the Old Testament were like the sacrifice of Jesus, why would we even need the sacrifice of Jesus? Verse 3, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins, year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, this is what John is saying, this is the one who came. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now what I like about the New American Standard, not to promote it any longer, but is the fact that it capitalizes Old Testament quotations. You might notice if you're looking at the New American Standard, that part's in all caps. What are they quoting the writer of the book of hebrews is quoting psalm 40 verse 6 now if you were to flip back in your old testament to psalm 46 it would read this sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired my ears you have opened burnt offering and sin offering you have not required now, i only bring this up in passing to show you a literary Difficulty, or I should say, observation that we ought to make lest we stumble. The author of the book of Hebrews said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And in your Old Testament, it says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. The point that is being made in the book of Hebrews is that a body was prepared. That body is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. And yet our Old Testaments don't have that reading. Our Old Testaments say, in place of a body you have prepared, says, my ears you have opened. If you had the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it would indeed say, a body you have prepared for me. The author of the book of Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And that was the Bible of the early church. I bring that up just so you do not stumble. We can do a sermon on why that difference exists. I just bring it up to show it to you. And we can talk about it after the sermon if you're so interested. But indeed, a body God had prepared... And that body was the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. John is unpacking what is known by many theologians as the Historia Salutis. That's a fancy word meaning the history of salvation. We know of the Ordo Salutis, that is the order of salvation by which someone is saved, the golden chain of redemption. But there's also a Historia Salutis. And this is what John is unpacking. And it's here that I want to show you an illustration based upon it. Turn, if you're able, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John's gospel we've gone to repeatedly, as we've been learning from his epistle. I believe that his epistle came after his gospel, And I want you to look starting at verse 23 as we consider this history of salvation, this promise, this plan that formed before the earth was, before God made anything, before God said, this is important, before God said, let there be light, there was already a plan. There was already a plan. We know it as the covenant of redemption. A plan between the Father and the Son to send Him into the world to save sinners from their sins. Does that mean that God planned what happened to our first parents in the Garden of Eden? Yes, it does. Why would He do such a thing? For His glory and our good. But the body that was prepared was prepared even before the foundation of the world. And in John chapter 16, I believe that Jesus is unpacking this truth of this history of salvation. Read with me starting in verse 23. In that day, Jesus is teaching his disciples, in that day you will not question me about anything. I believe he's talking about after the resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. What blasphemy, unless Jesus is God. Until now, Jesus says, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world." I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. We know his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus had said this time and time again. Here I believe it's concentrated that he came from the Father. And the disciples have come now to believe it. And this is again wrapped up in this idea of the history of salvation. When John says, this is the one who came. I believe all of this is included. The history of salvation. The covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Spirit before the world was. The incarnation itself this is the one who came. This is the Jesus that the faithful profess. Do you profess this Jesus? Is this the Jesus that you confess? Or is Jesus just a wise man, a good teacher? Or, like the Gnostics say, someone who had the privilege bestowed on him after the incarnation? Or rather, is Jesus the Son of God, the promised Messiah, born of a virgin, born under the law, Messiah in and of himself, and God in and of himself. But what does John mean when he says, for this is the one who came by water and blood? Well, let's first look at not with water only because he's going to repeat himself here when he says this is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ not with the water only but with the water and with the blood let us consider what's behind this saying not with water only again here John is continuing his argument against the docetic heresy. But again, what does John mean by water here? John has already said that Jesus came by water and blood. But now he's correcting an error that some may have. That he only came by water. Although the terms water and blood are understandable in and of themselves... What they mean is the crux of the issue. Do you know what water is? Do you know what blood is? The words are plain, but how John is using these words is not so plain. Is John speaking literally? Jesus came by water and by blood? Is he speaking figuratively? Or is he speaking spiritually? Some see these two things, water and blood, as redemptive symbols. Can you think of anything in the New Testament about water and blood? Does anything come to mind? There's two ordinances in the New Testament. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Many see this saying of John, not with water only, but water and blood, to mean the two ordinances of the Lord's Supper. Jesus comes in water and in blood. He he comes to you in salvation, and you are washed of your sins. And you are baptized as a profession of that faith. And you are fed by the Lord's Supper, which is a memorial, and what we know more than a memorial of his sacrifice and death on the cross. So does John mean that the water and the blood are, the, are symbolic of the spiritual reality of baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances in the New Covenant? Some see it literally as the meaning of Jesus' physical birth and his physical death. Jesus didn't just come born of a virgin, born of water, Not to be too graphic, but what happens in childbirth? A woman has water that breaks, and a child is born, and death on the cross? He didn't just come by water, physical birth, but by the blood of the cross? Some see these as pointing to the purity of Christ. What is the water symbolic of? It washes away our sins. And what does the blood signify? Christ's sufferings. So that he came by water and blood point to the purity of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and the sufferings of his life, most notably the sufferings on the cross. Some see the beginning and the ending of the ministry of Jesus' ministry on earth. In the state of his humiliation, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River and the cross. Commentators are not unified. We've heard time and time again from the likes of John Calvin. He says, but that the references to baptism is not probable. I certainly think that John sets forth here the fruit and effect of what he recorded in the gospel. For what he says there, the water and blood flowed from the side of Christ is no doubt to be deemed a miracle. On the other hand, John Gill says, the ordinance of water baptism is designed. And though Christ did not come baptizing with water, he having a greater baptism to administer, yet that he might be made manifest, John came baptizing in that way, and Christ as the Son of God came or was manifest by John as such, at the waters of the Jordan, and at his baptism. There he was declared to be the Son of God, by his Father's voice from heaven. So who's right? John Calvin? Or John Gill? Is it a battle of the Johns? Or John the Apostle? Well, clearly, there is much to this issue. And I have come to be convinced that the key To this quandary of what the water and the blood are communicating is best. Own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It is written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit then the Jews because it was the day of preparations that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away verse 32 so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him but coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. John goes on to say, And he who has seen has testified that his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. I believe this is a fitting section in John 19 to talk about the last heading, he conquered, the victory of Jesus Christ, because this is the victory. It's ironic that it was about 50 years prior that Julius Caesar coined that famous term, I came, I saw, I conquered, and that we identified that it was a written statement. Well, here it is, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is conquering a much greater victory. Conquering a much greater foe. And there's a sign. And one of the inscriptions is even in Latin. Like Caesar's. And it says Jesus the Nazarene. The king of the Jews. And when Jesus knew that all was fulfilled in the scriptures. All of the promises and the shadows that we're talking about. Where John says he came. All of those promises were completed, were fulfilled. In him, he says, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Nothing about the Christ spirit leaving Jesus at the call of dereliction on the cross. Nothing about Jesus ceasing to be the son of God. In fact we know from another gospel writer that Jesus says father into your hands I commit my spirit this is the victory Jesus didn't just come by water but he came by water and with blood not just as a representative for us that he was living the perfect life so that we can be set free living the life that we need to live so that we can stand before his judgment seat and hear those words that we all long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, and not hear those most terrifying words that any of us will ever hear, depart from me, I never knew you. He didn't just come for that, but he came to be a fulfillment of the promises that were disclosed even to Adam and Eve. This is not a mystery that has just been revealed to us. This is a gospel message that has been available probably minutes after sin entered the world. How long was it? How long was it after sin entered the world that it took God or God chose to give that message of hope? Seems to me it was shortly after. The promise of the seed who would bruise the head of the serpent came shortly after Adam and Eve had sinned. They were left only a short time, seemingly, to wallow in their sins, to wallow in their hopelessness as they tried to make fig leaves to cover themselves. And so it is with us, those of us who believe. God left all of us for a short time in our misery. And our hopelessness, trying to make fig leaves for ourselves, to cover ourselves, to hide us from the judgment that we know will befall all those who do not believe. And in His mercy, for those of us in Christ, He gave us the gospel. He not only gave us the gospel, He gave us the ability to believe the gospel. And it is that promise and hope we pray He would be so kind to give our children, those whom we love, our family members who yet to confess His name, those who do not understand the depths and the truth behind He came with water and with blood. In conclusion, one of the theologians that I was studying from this week says this, and I think it sums up the warning in this passage William Hendrickson says as soon as we reduce the death of Jesus to that of a mere man so soon do we lose the cardinal point of the New Testament doctrine of the atonement And here it is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and the author of the Hebrews says in chapter 10 therefore brethren with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. There is an application to be made with us, with pure water and with blood. But the application truly finds its source from Jesus Christ, who came not by water only, but by the blood, and who testified of such things, by the pierced side which miraculously flowed blood and water which we remember in the ordinances of baptism baptism and the Lord's Supper. How I long to eat the supper with you this morning. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is sure. We thank you for the testimony that you give us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came not by water only, but by water and blood. O Father, nourish our souls now in your supper as we confess our sins to you and long for his coming in glory where all things will be made new. We thank you, we praise you, we love you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. All God's people say, Amen. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let us confess our sins before the Supper is presented.